I'm Chuck Smeaton from the Royal Institution of Australia, and this is the Cosmos Briefing Podcast. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Kaurna people, traditional owners of the land where I speak to you from today, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. In this episode of our weekly series where journalists from the Cosmos Newsroom bring you their highlights from the week in science, we hear about the climate change threat to the Winter Olympics, a smartphone that might be able to tell if you have COVID, and a 750-kilometre long lightning bolt. And our journalists today are Lauren Fuge, Amalia Hart and Matilda Hansley-Davis. Amalia, you're our resident ancient human nerd, and you wrote a cool story this week about something our ancestors did. Do you want to tell me about that? Yeah, so this team of Israeli archaeologists did a study where they modelled the movement of smoke from a campfire inside a cave. And they were looking at this cave called the Lazaret Cave or Lazarette Cave, not 100% sure if I've just <laughs> French language, um, in southeastern France. And it was inhabited about 170,000 to 150,000 years ago by either some kind of proto Neanderthal. Um, or something, mysterious hominin. And they wanted to know why these hominins were placing their their hearth fires exactly where they did, in the centre of the cave, even though their computer simulations that they'd done showed that the the perfect and prime position for your hearth fire is at the back of the cave so that the smoke disperses in such a way that you don't get bombarded. So they mapped it through this computer model and they found that where they placed the fire was perfect for balancing the needs of minimizing smoke inhalation while maximizing the use of it as a kind of central space, social space. So that seems like the same thing probably any of us would try to do if we were setting up a fire in a cave. So why, why do you think it was necessary to investigate with this sort of scientific modeling? Well, that's one of the things that I really love about scientists is that even when it might seem like a pretty obvious answer, you know, we're balancing the benefits of, of the fire against the negatives of smoke inhalation. Scientists don't really like to make assumptions, so they test their theories no matter how, how seemingly simple they might be. And so that's exactly what they did. They modelled the cave using a computer model and performed all these smoke dispersal simulations for 16 hypothetical hearth placements in the cave. Then they cross-compared World Health Organization smoke exposure recommendations with the smoke density detected by imaginary computer-modeled sensors placed in the imaginary computer-modeled cave. And then they mapped out four activity zones around each imaginary hearth, sorry, uh, an unusable red zone, an uncomfortable yellow zone, a green zone that would have been fine to sit in for maybe a few hours or a day, and a blue zone that's completely smoke-free. smoke-free. And then with all these calculations, they identified a 25 square meter area in the cave that would have been best for placing the hearth. And lo and behold, that's where the hominins put it. So they proved what they suspected, but they had to go through this incredibly convoluted route to get there. Huh. And does this, like, does this tell us anything about human evolution? I think so. I mean, it may seem obvious to us that our ancestors were making smart decisions and weighing up you know, the benefits and the payoffs. But I do think, you know, archaeologists are quite fascinated with understanding how far back our capacity for forward thinking, planning and ingenuity actually extends. So these aren't homo sapiens. They're a pre-homo sapiens kind of hominin. Um, And this evidence of spatial planning 
they believe is evidence for forethought and, you know, I guess intellect in a pre-homo sapiens hominin. So whether you think that's a surprise depends on, you know, what your pre-existing beliefs are about hominins. But yeah, I think it's kind of cool. Yeah, I think it's kind of cool as well. Now you've explained it, it's really awesome. (laughs) Uh, And Lauren, this week you had a look at how climate change is threatening the Winter Olympics. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, well, there was a report that came out from experts um, at a university in London, as well as the sporting advocacy group called Protect Our Winters, and it was about how climate change is threatening snow sports in general. And obviously this week we are coming to the Winter Olympics, so they released the report as the Winter Olympics are about to start. And basically it's saying that the warming weather will make these sports more dangerous to athletes because it's going to make snow and ice form differently. And it'll reduce the opportunities that athletes even get to practice on snow. And it'll force an increase in artificial snow use as well. So at the Beijing Olympics, actually, the Beijing Winter Olympics, this is the first Winter Olympics that is using 100% artificial snow. And there are a lot of people who are worried about whether or not that's going to affect the sports and whether or not it's going to be more dangerous for the athletes um, to be on there. Because artificial snow is a different makeup to normal snow. Um, it's got higher ice contents, about 30% ice versus 10% ice in normal snow. And so people are worried about how that's going to affect the athletes. Which places won't be able to host the Winter Olympics in future then? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because they looked at like previous places that had hosted the Olympics and found that about half of them wouldn't be suitable to host the Olympics again in the future. Basically, the snowpack around the world is becoming more and more unpredictable due to temperature patterns and weather fluctuations. And so there are places that just won't have that reliable snowfall anymore. And they've listed some previous places that hosted the Olympics as high risk, like Norway, France, Austria, and there are other places that are unreliable, deemed unreliable, like Vancouver um, and the Score Valley in the United States. So about 11 out of 21 previous places that hosted the Olympics won't be able to host it again in the future. So it's just, yeah, I think the report is just really urging more research on the impact of climate change on a lot of the things that we know and love, including snow sports. And I think it's a really poignant message to get across, especially in the, as the Winter Olympics comes up. What yeah. absolutely devastating science news that will affect my life in completely no way. <laughs> <laughs> but plenty of people who love skiing and snowboarding, plenty. even as, yeah. yeah. Snow sports. And, and I think that's... Um, you know, just from what I've seen also in the news recently is the the scariness of climate change and the impact on the Olympics. It actually extends beyond just the winter because I've seen some people saying the summer Olympics are just going to be getting too hot and they might need to move to autumn in the future or something like that. So it's really a year-round sort of threat to these big cultural events. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I guess another thing that's been a threat to cultural events at the moment is COVID. And you wrote a really interesting story this week, Matilda, and I found it interesting because I'm currently in isolation and have to take um, rat tests. And you were writing about a different way that you could test yourself for COVID. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, uh, thanks for saying it was interesting, first of all. Um, So, yes, I wrote about a new type of COVID test. This was a paper by um, some US-based researchers that was published last week in JAMA Network Open, and they uh, have basically invented test for SARS-CoV-2 and also for the flu virus, um, influenza virus, that is performed using a smartphone app. 
how 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 do you use your smartphone to do that yeah so it's actually not necessarily an app you can just download straight to your smartphone and start using right away but um it's still pretty cool so the name of the technique is smart lamp which is short for smartphone based real-time loop mediated isothermal amplification which is a bit of a mouthful um so isothermal or loop Mediated isothermal amplification is a way to amplify nucleic acid, so usually DNA or RNA. Um, so it's a little bit like PCR in that sense. You use, you get your um, your RNA reverse transcribe it into DNA, and then you um, use primers and a polymerase to amplify and make lots of copies of that. The cool thing about loop-mediated isothermal amplification is that it works at a constant temperature, unlike PCR, where you have to very precisely control the temperature across lots of cycles for it to work and make these copies of DNA. Um, and then there's a fluorescent uh, dye that binds to the DNA, um, the viral DNA that's being amplified, and that's detected by the smartphone camera and there's a smartphone app they've developed that can then give you the result about whether SARS-CoV-2 or influenza was detected um, in the saliva sample actually. So you don't even need to get a swab up the nose. It's um, you just fit into a tube and uh, off you go. I was going to say, I need to ask a bit about the procedure of this. So do you literally spit into a tube and take a picture of it and a smartphone camera can pick up those subtleties? No, so there, there is a lab kit involved as well. So you take the saliva sample and you, you have your little um, kit of lab reagents that you put in to do the reverse transcription RNA to DNA and then do the isothermal loop-mediated amplification. Um, and then you, that's all taking place in a, sort of a cardboard box on top of a hot plate to keep the temperature constant. And your smartphone is looking through a little aperture or hole in the top of the box and uh, seeing what's what's going on with the fluorescent dye under there. But it's probably not something that we'll be carrying around in our pockets. Will we be seeing it in the future for the average smartphone or, or where would this technology be used? Yeah, so um, not at home just yet. The researchers were specifically interested in developing a process that could be used that's you know basically about as accurate as PCR, according to this paper, and almost as fast as a rapid antigen test to rats. So it takes about 25 minutes to get a result and it's pretty accurate. And they wanted this to be applied to mainly healthcare and testing settings that don't have so many resources. So particularly in maybe developing countries or a sort of under-resourced um, health settings. So rather than needing these like really specialized um, lab training and equipment that you need to do something like PCR, and it's also cheaper to run as well. It's about um, US $7 per sample to run this test, whereas PCR is about 100 to 150 US dollars per sample. Um, so that's what they were aiming for. They've also made the technology and the app free and open source. So they're really, you know, trying to make it accessible to lots of different applications. Um, and I did talk to the researcher, one of the researchers on his paper, and he said the next phase was they were interested in looking into sort of a home-based COVID testing version. So may not be for a while, but I think that would be pretty cool if, you know, in the future you don't have to get into your car and go get your nose swabbed. You can just have this little kit in your, you know, bathroom cabinet and spit into it and, yeah, get your results from there. That would be so cool if I could have done a test that was like as accurate as PCR instead of a rat test this week. That would have been yeah. amazing. So that'd be cool to see in the future. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, and Amalia, back to you. You wrote another really cool story this week that was about, I think, a really big bolt of lightning. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So this week, the World Meteorological Organization announced its confirmation of the longest ever lightning strike. In fact, the longest ever lightning strike by distance, and then another lightning strike that was the longest ever lightning strike by duration. So the first one was this massive megabolt that stretched for about 768 kilometers, I think, across three American states, uh, which were Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. And then the longest lightning flash by duration was a 17-second long continuous burst of lightning from a thunderstorm over Uruguay and northern Argentina in 2020. In fact, both were in 2020. So, yeah, pretty epic. How, how do they even measure how long a lightning bolt is? So you get a scientist and you give him a measuring tape and then he just works <laughs> really, really fast. <laughs> no, it's, um, there's these satellites that the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration put up there and they have these geostationary lightning mappers on board. So you can observe this single flash of lightning all at once and you can measure exactly how, how wide across it is and also how long it's going on for. Wow, that's pretty cool. Um, I've just been looking up for our Australian audience. Um, the distance by car from Adelaide to Melbourne is about 700-odd kilometres as well. So if that helps anyone regarding the scale of this lightning strike, that's pretty amazing. So big. Yeah, that's so big. Um, So how common are these sorts of mega lightning strikes, Amalia? Yeah, they're very uncommon. They don't normally occur in your average thunderstorm. In fact, they require these really really big, really electrified storm clouds that discharge at a sufficiently slow rate. So it's pretty unusual for this to happen. There's a type of storm system, it's called a mesoscale convective system, if that means anything to anyone, uh, that can meet the criteria for these mega flashes. But I mean, even in those kinds of systems, it only happens once in a blue moon when, it, when it's at such a large scale. And so these things have been observed a lot over North America and South America, but not quite so much around the rest of the world. And that's partly because they haven't really been looking in those places enough. Um, so I think the more they look, the more we'll find, but yeah, pretty hectic lightning bolt. Yeah. That's pretty insane. Isn't it? Wow. I wonder with some of these storms that we're getting up in the Queensland, whether we'll see some big lightning bolts up there, probably not as big as <laughs> the ones they saw in the U S but that's amazing. <laughs> Never know. Well, they've got tornadoes up there apparently today or yesterday yeah i heard that as well but uh lightning bolts don't come with tornadoes but <laughs> not with that attitude sorry <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode remember that you can head to cosmosmagazine.com via the link in the description for more great content you can also subscribe to cosmos magazine australia's only science print magazine and cosmos weekly with its unique approach to how science, news and the economy intersect. Podcast listeners can get both products at a special price using the coupon code you'll also find in the description. Of course, you can watch and listen to all our Cosmos briefings via the link in the description too. And remember, if you support science and its communication, please support our work at the Royal Institution of Australia. I'm Chuck Smeaton, and today's podcast featured Lauren Fuge, Amalia Hart, and Matilda Hansley Davis. Thank you. Thank you.